I want to start this morning uh, by telling you a story. You know, after 25 years as the senior pastor at First Community Church, Pastor Steve was finally retiring. He and a few others had planted the church in their community, and it grew into a healthy church during the time. And Steve and, and his elders had at First Community had worked diligently um, to select a new senior pastor. And, and they were selecting a younger guy named John uh, with a family. And they had hoped that by selecting a younger senior pastor, it would help them connect with the next generation. After a short transition, the church uh, had a special service to pray for John and his family as the new incoming leaders, uh, as well as to bless Steve and his family as they stepped out of their role. And tears flowed as they remembered all the ways that they loved Steve. But they had high hopes for where the church was going. At the first meeting after John uh, was prayed for as the new leader, John was in charge of the meeting and he began to share his vision of reaching the people in their community in their 20s and 30s. John himself was in his mid-30s and he had been an associate pastor previously at a church that had a thriving young adult ministry. All the people in the room were very excited that they thought they were going to see the legacy of the church continue, and they applauded, and they cheered. The excitement was palpable. And so the next week, John went to work trying to shift the church to be positioned more for a younger crowd. He changed some of the signs in the lobby. He, he, he got some much more colorful signs and, and, and signs that would be more guest-friendly with brighter colors uh, that were easier to see. He added a couple of his younger friends to the worship team. And on his first Sunday, instead of the shirt and tie that Steve always wore, John wore khaki pants and a polo shirt. When the elders arrived before the service, they were surprised by the changes. Several of them were really appreciative of the way that John was getting right to work, making the atmosphere more inviting to younger people. But Brenda was upset. Brenda was Pastor Steve's sister-in-law, and she had been an elder on the church board since it opened. Brenda found Pastor John, and she confronted him about the changes. She said that while she liked the signs, the old signs were chosen because they went with the color scheme of the church logo. It tied the whole place together. She didn't appreciate the new worship team members because her friend Terry, who had always been a vocalist on Sunday, had now been left out, and she really didn't get much notice. And finally, Brenda said, didn't it occur to you that Sunday's important? You should dress up for an important occasion. Of course, we all know how this goes. Uh, John was not going to be steamrolled as the new senior pastor, so he, uh, he's, he just responded, I was hired to reach younger people. That's what you told me you wanted when you interviewed me. This is how you do that, so you're just going to have to get over it. Brenda stormed away, but that wasn't the end of the story. Right before John was about to preach, Brenda walked out into the lobby where she found another elder, Tim. She vented all of her frustrations to Tim, and as she finished venting, she said, Steve would never have tolerated this. It goes against the very reasons why the church exists. We should do something about this. Of course, as you can imagine, Tim was sort of like caught by surprise, wasn't sure what to do, so he sheepishly agreed. And then... Excuse me. Over the course of the next weeks and months, 
Pastor John continued to change things. And the younger generation began to find their way into the church. They even baptized a, new, a few new believers, something that hadn't happened much in recent years. But over the time, Brenda just got madder at every change. And every week, she found another one of the church members to vent her frustrations to. Six months into John's time as a senior pastor, there was a fellowship dinner at the church building to put, uh, put together by Brenda. What was odd about this fellowship dinner was that it wasn't published anywhere. It was an invite-only dinner. And what's worse, John had not been invited. Neither had the, all of the new 20 and 30-somethings from the church. When the dinner began, it was an interesting crowd. All the elders except for two were there. All of Brenda's friends from the church were there. And all the people she had been venting her frustrations to weekend and week out were there. What began as a fellowship dinner quickly spiraled into a gripe session until about an hour in, Brenda suggested that there were enough elders in this room that we could make some changes. Armed with enough votes, the elders called an emergency board meeting the next week. At this board meeting, John was made aware of all the ways that he had failed to live up to the biblical standard of a senior pastor and how really on Sunday his messages just really weren't that relevant to the church. And with a vote of seven to two, the elders fired Pastor John. The story is not unique. This situation plays out all the time in churches all across this country. And yet most of us would say that it violates the way Christians are supposed to act. What happened? We began a new series last week that I'm calling Different. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to look different, right? We're supposed to act differently. We're supposed to live differently than the rest of the world. Our lives are supposed to be compelling to the people around us. And the unfortunate reality is that so often they're not. I told you last week that it's impossible to separate spiritual maturity from emotional maturity. And for a long time, the church has focused solely on helping people grow spiritually. But we've neglected talking about emotional maturity. And it shows up in our inability to become really spiritually mature. Last week, I, I tried to challenge you to begin to see your own anxiety. And as we begin this week, I want to help you begin to see places where you've been unaware of your own anxiety. The point behind this is not to make you anxious people. Certainly, you, I wouldn't want to do that. But the point is to help you see where you're anxious so that you can begin to allow Jesus to shape it. Now, it's helpful to know that humanity always reacts in one of the same four ways to anxiety. These ways are conflict, like I come against you in conflict, or distance, you know, if, if anxiety gets too high, I just find my way out, or over-functioning or under-functioning, and we can talk about that uh, soon, or projection, what we, may be, what we would probably call triangling. So if you learn to see the way these things show up in your life, and what circumstances cause you to do them, you can actually begin to take note of situations that trigger anxiety in you. Today we're gonna to look at triangling as a sign of anxiety. 
This message is titled, Seeing My Own Anxiety in Triangles. And we're going to look today at John chapter 8. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8. I'll give you just a second. I would just put it on the screen, except I'm not really sure how to do that uh, live. Give you just a second. Okay, I'll read John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Here's what we read. At dawn, he appeared again, this is Jesus, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until... Only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, there's a number of ways that we could look at this passage. Today we're going to look at this passage from the perspective of observing the triangle that's happening so that we can learn to see our own anxieties. In this passage, the Pharisees are, are very anxious people. They know the law. They know this woman has broken the law. They know the penalty for breaking the law. There's absolutely no reason that they need to involve Jesus in the conversation at all. And yet, instead of dealing with the issue at hand between the two parties involved, the Pharisees triangle in Jesus. This is what happens in a triangle. The anxiety within a situation reaches a level where people can no longer manage it, and they feel the need to offload their anxiety. So one party seeks to relieve their own anxiety by bringing in someone else into the conversation. And that's what happens here with Jesus. That's what happened in the story at the beginning of the message, for that matter, about Pastor John. You've probably seen this before. Let me give you an example. You have an exchange with your boss that goes poorly. You know that your boss is wrong, but you don't confront her. When you get back to your office, the anxiety within you is so great that you lean over to the cubicle next to you and you tell your coworker all about it. And you cover it up saying, I'm just venting my frustrations, right? I'm just, I'm just getting it off my chest so that I can think clearly. Over a period of time, though, your coworker and you begin to have secret exchanges about your boss without talking to, to her. And effectively, the two of you bond over the mutual dislike of the boss. This is triangling. It happens everywhere. Let me give you another example. A married couple begins to have difficulty in their marriage. And instead of staying present in the anxiety and working it out, the husband reaches out to an old friend to offload the anxiety that he feels. 
he and the friend begin talking every time there's a negative exchange in the marriage. A blow up in the morning, he gives, he gives a phone call. The conversation relieves his anxiety for a time and he feels better. After a while, the couple ends up getting a divorce. What happened? Instead of staying in the anxiety and addressing the cause of the problems, the husband triangled in a third person who made him feel better for a time. But the problem never gets fixed. Here's the reality. Everyone is part of a triangle somewhere. You're part of triangles. If the anxiety is low, you may not see them, but as soon as anxiety comes up, you reach for the triangle to stabilize yourself. What are we who follow Jesus supposed to do? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Matthew 18, Jesus outlines how we're supposed to handle situations just like this. Jesus says that your first course of action is to go directly to the person you have an issue with and address the issue between the two of you. Don't blast them on Facebook. Don't tell everyone else that you're seeking wise counsel on what to do. Come on, I can see you. The way Christians tend to dress this up, and maybe you've heard this one, right? The way Christians tend to dress this up when they go about triangling is they go to everyone else, and here's what, what do they say? They say, I need you to pray for this situation that I just had with so-and-so. I need you to pray for me right now because here's what happened. The person that I'm dealing with, they just did this and they said that. Don't do that. You're lying to yourself. What Jesus says is we go directly to the person that we have an issue with. We go directly to them. We don't go to anybody else. We go directly to the person to resolve the conflict. And here's the deal. When you do that, nine times out of 10, it's going to solve the problem. But if it doesn't, Jesus says, take, two, take one or two witnesses along. Not a mob. Not a big group that you've stirred up into dissension. One or two witnesses that can attest to how they've seen the issue. Can I just say that in way more cases and we care to admit this is going to bring about resolution. It's almost like Jesus knows how human hearts work. And he's given us an appropriate way to deal with it. Can you imagine how many destroyed marriages, imploded churches, and ruined friendships could be saved if we just lived life the way Jesus says? But the reality is triangles are a fact of life. I would say it's probably a consequence of the fall. They're one of the default ways humans deal with anxiety. And they don't have to necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, think about it for a second. If you've ever been to a good counselor or a good therapist or had a good conversation with a pastor, in these scenarios, you talk with people about situations that don't involve them. What makes the difference between a good triangle and a bad triangle is how emotionally healthy the people in them are, especially the third person. Here's a place you've probably found yourself once or twice. If you're minding your own business and someone else triangles you into an issue they're having with another person. They come to you and they're like, I can't believe this person did this to me. What do you think? How do you handle this situation? 
what are you going to do when this happens? I mean, if you look back at the passage, Jesus gets triangled into the issue with the Pharisees, and there's a lot riding on the situation, isn't there? I mean, basically, they're going to kill this woman. If he sides with the woman and tells the Pharisees to lighten up, he's choosing mercy over justice. It's like he's saying, I know the law says she should die, but come on. The law really isn't that important. Can't you just have a little grace? Can't you just have a little grace? If he sides with the Pharisees and tells them to go ahead and stone her, he's violating his own nature as a bearer of grace. Maybe you've been in that situation before. Have you felt this before? Where you've been triangled into a situation and it feels like there's no way out. Feels like you were handed a, a ticking time bomb and there's no way to win. No matter what you do, you're going to lose. Either you're going to lose a friendship or you're going to violate your conscience and there's no way to win. Have you been there? I know I've been there. Jesus in this situation demonstrates for us what it looks like to be a healthy third person in a triangle. He doesn't run away. He doesn't violate his nature and he refuses to take sides. What effectively Jesus does is he says, the law is good. And we all know the penalty. So go ahead and deliver the punishment that's deserved, but only if you have the moral standing to do it. And what Jesus has done is this. He's forced everyone in the situation to consider their own broken selves and their own part to play in the situation. He's not going to be co-opted by either side. He stays connected and defined. He forces them to consider their own hearts and their own motives. And in doing so, he forces the original two parties to solve the problem between themselves. How do you function as an emotionally healthy third party in a triangle? It begins by having your identity rooted in something unshakable. You have to know that you know that you know that you are loved by God, that your value, your worth comes from God. It's important because people who are triangling you in are trying to force you to take on the identity that they need you to have. And if you want to be able to stand firm, it requires that you know that absolutely no part of your identity rests on what people think about you. This is why emotional health and spiritual health are so inseparable. The only way you can do this well is by having a regular time where you put yourself in a position to be loved by God, to hear that your value and your identity are set by God, that they're eternally set, that there's nothing about your identity that rests in what somebody else thinks about you. That's the, that's the only way that you can do that. It's the only way that you can engage in a situation without aligning yourself with one side or the other. And then you can show up in a situation knowing that you're the beloved of God and you're free to be able to hear their side without having to align yourself with their view. This makes you free to direct people back to pursue restoration with the other person. If you don't do that, you'll enable people to avoid their problems and avoid the healing that comes in restoration. Now, here's the thing. 
every last one of us sits here and we think about that and we go, man, I fail at this. I'm really not very good at this. When I really think about my life, I find myself in triangles. And I'm, even if I don't want to be, I just, I just muck it up every time. I want to give you a word of encouragement. We're all on this journey somewhere. Every one of us. We all have places in our lives that we don't measure up. We all have places where we triangle others in to our own anxiety instead of addressing our problems. We all have places where we get triangled into an issue and don't maintain a healthy role. The hope in this message is that you would begin to see your own anxiety when you find yourself in a triangle, whether you started it or you were roped in by somebody else. And this really is an, is an indicator of the presence of anxiety. This is how we can tell when we're becoming anxious. And if you can begin to see it as a warning light on the dashboard, you'll be one step closer to being able to surrender your anxiety and be healed by God. The beauty of Jesus is that he has grace for us as he changes us. Praise God for that. Jesus has grace for you as you're changing. He doesn't expect you to be perfect already. There's grace as you walk through this. And as you begin to pursue this, you're going to begin to notice the places where you triangle other people in and where your anxiety is the, is the reason this happens. You're probably going to see it mostly initially after it happens. You're going to find yourself at home and go, wow, <laughs> there I was, triangled them in again. But if you begin to take a curious posture before the Lord, if you begin to have these, these spaces of silence and solitude, these spaces of examine where you can allow God to search your heart, he'll begin to speak to you about those things. And what you'll see is that you'll begin to grow in your awareness when those circumstances arise. And then you'll be able to allow Jesus to transform you in those spaces. This is how we become different people. Is that we, we take emotional health seriously, we take spiritual health seriously because they're really interconnected. This is how we do it, friends. This is how we become different people, the kind of people that Jesus invites us to become.